recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. Guestbook Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, we're back for part two. Rich Rosenzweig. It's as if I never left. Wait a minute. I never left. (laughs) I'm still here. Yes, indeed. So we finished part one with the uh, screenwriter portion. And today we're going to be talking about his life as a musician, as well as uh, fun stuff he's done in D.C. I'm going to close it out with seven questions. But first, what song are we listening to right now? We are listening to Long Term Memories. This this is uh, on a record that I did with a fantastic D.C. trumpet player. Actually, he's originally from Bethesda, named Ron Horton who's been a New Yorker as long as I have since the very early 80s, a very dear friend. And this was his first record under his name called Genius Envy. It was a blast to record. I really love the music. Uh, We had the illustrious Ben Allison on the bass and the fantastic soprano saxophonist Jane Ira Bloom, among others. Half the songs had no piano on them, although when it did, it had Frank Kimbrough, another great pianist who I lived with in D.C. when I lived here for a year and a half out of college. So, yeah, it has some meaning for me in terms of D.C., my connection to the D.C. musicians that I was close to for the time I was here right out of college. And uh, thank you for playing it. Very welcome. And the song that we played at the end of part one, it's called Happy and Out of It. Yeah, also from that record. It's funny, I'm particularly proud, I think, of that record, Genius Envy, just because Ron had written some great tunes, and I don't know, it just has a certain sound. Certainly nothing against the East Down Septet, my own band with amazing musicians in it, I was very lucky to have, but uh, we happened to pick those two. All right. How'd you get started playing drums? I believe it was my mom's determination that we all take piano lessons when we were kids to get some sort of basis in music and where that went from there was whatever happened around third grade or so I'd been taking a couple of years of piano lessons I didn't really apply myself that much I liked music but I was listening to rock and roll and I just thought maybe taking drums might be fun so in third grade I had group lessons with a couple of other guys The music teacher was a woman who maybe knew a couple of rudiments on the drums, and we played on these little rubber pads. And I think I stayed interested enough to want to bang on a real drum. So for Hanukkah one year, my parents surprised me with a snare drum, and that quickly was not enough. So a year later, I got a small drum set, and it excited me. But I I think I was always more excited about the music than just being a drummer. And I got into jazz pretty quickly, actually, which is was odd of someone my age. Did you get into jazz drumming before or during high school? Uh, I would say a little before high school. 
Okay. By the time I was in high school, even though I had played in some rock and roll bands, I formed a jazz group, which was a little bit of a novelty. In the 1970s, we were playing music from the 1930s and 40s. How old were you when you started your first rock band, and how old were you when you did your first jazz band? I believe the first time I ever played with a couple of other guys playing rock and roll, uh, 13, 14 years old. All right. In the jazz band? 15, 16, 17. So you mentioned D.C. You lived out here for a bit. I did. When I graduated from, excuse me, the proper way of saying, when I was graduated from, not many people know that. I didn't know that either. That's what happens when your mom is a school teacher. So it's not like you did it. It's like they did it to you. Exactly. You are graduated from a school. Of course, we now all accept saying, I graduated from such and such. But in the old days, the uh, proper way to say it was, I was graduated from. But anyway, I was graduated from uh, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I got a bachelor's degree in radio, television, and motion pictures. Even though by the time I was a sophomore, I knew I wanted to be a musician, I didn't go to a big university to get a degree in music because that's not going to get you gigs. I wanted a really good liberal arts education, and this was a subject that interested me, and it also required that you take lots of liberal arts courses, so I took a lot of English and history. But uh, I didn't get a degree in music, and I wasn't in a town that was a big music town. So my choice was to move down to Miami, where I wasn't sure whether I'd become part of the school there, but the University of Miami had a great jazz department. Or what instead happened was that musicians that I had worked with in Chapel Hill had asked me to join their band, and they just moved to Washington, D.C., the pianist's name was Frank, is Frank Kimbrough, one of the great jazz pianists in New York, and the bassist was a, a very talented guy also from North Carolina named Lyles West. And they asked me to join the band. I moved to Washington, D.C. We lived in Mount Pleasant. And for the first year and a half after I was graduated from UNC, Lyles West and I shared that apartment, living the bachelor life the bachelor quintessential bohemian life of playing nothing but jazz gigs i really gravitated towards small group acoustic jazz music as opposed to playing big band music which was fun and i did it a bunch in high school and college but uh that's what i wanted to do at least that period in my life the trio was a drummer a bassist and piano player correct and we had a group called it was called hands ah we never recorded a record, but we did play a lot in the D.C. area. We played a lot at a place called... One Step Down. We never had our own gig at the One Step Down, but we played at the D.C. Space, played dinner and cocktail music at the Wharf in Alexandria. Blues Alley? Uh, uh, we did play a little bit at Blues Alley, and there's a club called Twins that used to be called Alva's Lounge, which was a real joint. Anyway... So that's where I was for the year plus out of college, playing with those guys. It was the real bohemian life. It's funny. I find that the older that I get, some of my most fondest memories are from my most Spartanist of times. Ha. Huh. I think a lot of people will be right there with you. You probably had less stress in your life. Right. And talk about, depending on what your job situation is, at that point you want to feel like 
all the possibilities are out there and you're not certainly going to be worrying that much about supporting a family or or your health or things like that so whatever you're doing especially if you're doing what I was doing which was playing music for fun that paid very little but I'm sure though the memory is one thing but if I went back to relive that time I can recall certain things that were plenty stressful yeah it's not all peaches and cream but the same token it's almost like barbecue ooh yes Part of what makes barbecue good is that there's areas of char and there's areas where it's yes. not necessarily undercooked, but it's like, you know, it's still fatty a bit, you know? Yeah. But when you put all that together, it makes for a good taste. Oh, hell yeah. And so if you think about during these times, of course, not everything's peaches and cream, you know, but the times that are bad are kind of like the char and the times where it's... I think we're saying that when you talk about life and you're being philosophical, it's important to use food as a metaphor. We can all relate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we knew every jazz musician in D.C. at the time, and we made some great friends, and there were some fabulous musicians living in D.C., but I think we were anxious to become the tiny, tiny fish in the, in the biggest pond, which was only a few hours north. So we wanted to move to New York. The one source that we had for where to live was a buddy of mine who was from Queens, who I had worked with during my summer jobs when I was in college, which was at the theme park Opryland in Nashville, Tennessee. And he was one of my buddies because it was just fun to hang out with a hardcore New Yorker while I was working in Nashville, Tennessee. And he highly recommended the neighborhood he lived in at the time, which was called Long Island City in Queens. And my response was typical of anybody who was dying to move to New York. I'm not moving to New York City to live in Queens. I'm going to live in Manhattan. And he said, just come and see the neighborhood. Shut up. And I went there. And not only is it five minutes from Midtown, but it was a hip little undiscovered old industrial neighborhood. First generation Italians owned a lot of the buildings. Uh, actually, the women were in charge. A lot of the women owned the buildings. It was very quiet, almost feeling because it was industrial and quiet that it didn't feel safe but it was quite safe so he turned me on to the neighborhood and then he said I think there's an apartment available on my block so he took me to meet Maria De Giorgio who was 86 years old had three teeth in her head barely spoke any English and took me to this apartment I was with Lyles at, at the time it was a four-room railroad flat when he says four rooms he means four rooms not four bedrooms Correct. And the kitchen is one room. Kitchen is one room, and there was a little bathroom stall in the kitchen. A full bathroom or just a half? A quarter. It's a, like a toilet with uh, in a room. There might have been a sink, I'm not sure. Okay. And the shower stall for the whole building. Yes, everybody. Six units in the building. Wait for it. One shower stall in the basement <laughs> because people were old school, and they probably sponged bath in front of the sink. And when they took their weekly shower, they went down to the basement. <laughs> Welcome to New York, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, 1981, New York City. For those unfamiliar with New York, would it be safe to say Long Island City is kind of like the Williamsburg of Queens? That's a, that's a good analogy. Uh, although it's right over the East River. Correct. It's two blocks from the East River with the best view. 
But at the time, it was a very, very quiet neighborhood that people in the back of their minds thought someday this is going to change because of its accessibility to Manhattan. Yeah, one day they're like, Amazon's going to come here. (laughs) At that point, a lot of artists moved there, but it didn't have the reputation of Williamsburg because it was still a little under the radar. Were there any Hasidic Jews there? Not in Long Island City. It it really was an Italian neighborhood. I'll finish this little segment of my life in that apartment initially by saying that the rent was $275 a month split three ways with the pianist and the bassist. Wow. For a four-room apartment. Yeah. This four-room railroad flat. I call it a railroad flat. It's also called a walkthrough or a shotgun. There's no hallway. There's just one room after another. How long did you continue playing jazz before you started working on the theater side of things? You really are learning very quickly if you want to be just a musician and not have a day job. You spread yourself as thin as you were able to and and as thin as you wanted to. For me, I still played as much jazz as I could all the time, but you took gigs where they came and I played on some cruise ships. I played weddings and bar mitzvahs, and I might have taken on a few private students, but that was a little difficult. Just practicing in our apartment was tough to have a drum set up in there. In a few years, it became apparent to me that if I was going to make a living as a performing musician, that uh, I would rather put my effort into trying to break into the Broadway scene. And this is a kind of a classic sort of evolution of any kind of career in theater. I played dinner theaters, I played summer stock, and there's no auditioning as you go up the ladder in theater if you're a musician. It's all about just building up a reputation and working with conductors who might want to work with you again afterwards. How long after you moved to New York was playing theater gigs your primary means of income? It's been my primary means of income for the last 15, 20 years. I tried to make it an even split between playing jazz and playing show music. And every time I went out on the road, I could get something out of it that would help me in my career maybe in New York. In other words, I would go out and play a tour and work with a conductor who also works in New York. And by the time I did the national tour of the producers, the Broadway musical, in 2004 or 5, by then, I was sort of at a crossroads. I I didn't know if I was really going to be able to make it playing just music. Though I got hired to do the tour, and I thought people liked my playing, I still was insecure enough so that I thought, I'm going to stay out on the producers for the full two years. Now, mind you, some people stay out on the road for their whole adult lives, make great money, play several different shows, but I really didn't want that. The road was something to do once in a while. But I did the producers for two full years, and by the end of the tour, my feelings had changed. I did buy a second home in upstate New York, but I maybe I just had renewed confidence and some new connections so that I was going to give it a go in New York. And it took me a few years in the mid-2000s, but uh, because of a few conductors that I had worked with, I had already had one or two Broadway shows of my own under my belt, which was fortunate uh, because the Broadway world has become now a real desirable place for musicians to work in the old days. And by old days, I mean in Broadway history up until about the 70s or 80s. 
It was what you did if there wasn't enough studio, TV, other show work that was maybe higher paying and not as repetitive as Broadway. Is it kind of like, and this is no slight to people that work at universities and teach, you know, classes in the arts, Mm -hmm. but there's some people who say the people that are teaching in schools, say acting. Are failed actors. Correct. (laughs) Maybe a better example is actors who have to do soap operas instead of movies on okay, TV. Gotcha, because gotcha. you're still playing. Correct. You know, I haven't even said it this way until I'm thinking of it now, but I, there's nothing wrong with being part of a hit Broadway show, that's for sure. Although when you're in a pit, you feel a little removed from actually performing for people as opposed to being on stage, and you certainly are not really recognized by an audience You're getting paid, but no one really notices you. And to this day, you're almost never reviewed. People are very visual. And it's only been in the last couple of decades that they even listed the musicians who were playing in the pit in a program. In a program where they'll list everybody on staff in the theater Mm -hmm. down to the person who sweeps the stage after the show's over. But they wouldn't tell you who was performing for you in the pit every night. That's not cool. It's not cool. However, I think my point is, is that Probably the number one reason why Broadway was less desirable was because you still were doing the same thing night after night, six days a week, until the show closed. Yeah. And as the deals with the uh, Broadway League got better through the union, it became, around the time I was getting into that world, a desirable, steady job to have as a working musician. You could have a career as a performing musician. You weren't a superstar. You weren't featured but you were playing with other musicians who were the best in their field, and I felt humbled and honored to be able to do it. Lightning round. Yes, sir. How many shows have you done in total? My own Broadway shows, I believe I'm at an even 10 right now. When I say 10 Broadway shows, I mean shows that I played on Broadway that, that I was the original drummer for. I've played between subbing and other tours more like... I'm sure there's something like 70 or 80 shows. And some of them I've done a few times. I've played a couple of productions of Evita, Jesus Christ Superstar. What was your favorite show to play? Close tie between Stephen Sondheim's show Follies and Leonard Bernstein's show On the Town. Why? I just think I'll just say the most fulfilling musically. How many touring shows have you done? About 10. And when you do these touring shows, on average, how long do they last? I've done tours anywhere from seven months to two years. Outside of the producers, what's the most famous quote-unquote show you've played for? That if we randomly pulled someone off the street and said, hey, have you heard of this play? Good question, because many of them people haven't heard unless they're big Broadway fans. I did Cinderella for two years on Broadway, and that was a version that actually few people before that really knew because it was a version that was just done for television. But they certainly know the name Cinderella. When was the last time you watched a play that you had played? You mean from the audience? Correct. In a live show? Well, oftentimes I'll go to see a show that I'm about to perform. Case in point, Hello, Dolly. I went to see Hello, Dolly from the audience before I did the tour because as iconic as that show is, I had never seen a production of it and I had never seen the movie. You know, it's funny. I should have mentioned that. That's one of the most famous Broadway musicals ever. And I'd say that should be one of the top shows on my list of shows that people know. But going around the country, it's interesting to meet people who are a little younger who just have never heard of Hello, Dolly. 
What I found is interesting, and this is a good segue from that. My father, he's a Trump player at the Kennedy Center. and He's, he's the dean of the Kennedy Center. <laughs> he's been there since before I was born. And um, he probably hasn't seen a show himself this millennium. Right. One thing I found interesting, I asked him, hey, how come you don't go see the shows? And he's like, I've seen it. He's like, I play this show every night, sometimes twice a day. And he can hear from the pit where people are standing kind of. Right. And so it's almost like he's Stevie wondering the show. <laughs> Do you find that that phenomenon is the same for you? That's an interesting point. However, every time I've gone to see a show, specifically the ones that I'm doing, if I sub out and I say, I want to see the show from the audience that I'm playing every night, without a doubt, without exception, as much as you think you know what's going on. Now, I even have the advantage that your father does not have of having rehearsed with the cast for weeks beforehand because in early rehearsals, they use piano and drums. So I know what everybody looks like. I know what the basic... The look of the show the look is going to be. The look of the be. show is going to be, although when you're rehearsing early on, there are no sets and usually no costumes. And you do some tech rehearsals, so you see what the show looks like. So you have a very strong image of what the show is, you think every night playing the show. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen a show from the audience and the performances have so much more dimension to them when you see it in the audience as compared to you imagining that actor in their costume every night hearing them deliver the same line. And usually it's for the better because there's usually nuance to how they deliver lines in extremes where you think they might be as stiff as an actor. And you're listening going, oh, this guy, this person's performance is kind of... But when you see it, there's this extra dimension. You go, wow, there's all this subtle stuff going on. You had no idea that the actors have even evolved after weeks or months of doing the performance. And it's usually really enjoyable on that level. All right. All right, so real quick before we end it out here. Um, you've been here now, what, five, six weeks? five weeks this is the fifth week yeah fifth and final week yep and you've had your mornings and early afternoons because the shows are mostly at night and you've had mondays off so you've had quite some time to be able to come out and check the city out what yeah have you done during your time here well i did manage to go to see the documentary apollo 11 at the imax theater in the air and space museum which was fantastic all right and I did get a special tour through the good graces of my sister-in-law, who's an archaeologist up in Albany. She has a friend whose wife works for the... Now, you can spell it after me. It's it's AOC, but it's not Alexandria... Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, it's, it's, it's the architect of the Capitol. Correct. There you go. And so I got a personal tour, myself along with our maestro for Hello, Dolly, the amazing Bob Billig. We got a personal tour of all of the architecture and artwork that's in the Capitol building, and it was unbelievable. You said you went to Baltimore. Uh, you went to Lexington Market, right? Yeah, that was all about the crab cake. It was awesome. And, and, and the West Side Story concert, which was great. And you saw that at the Baltimore... They're, they're up. Symphony Hall, which, uh, forgive me, I cannot remember the name of it, and I should give a shout-out to that orchestra because they're in dire straits right now. Um, mm. Their budget has gone down the crapper, and the musicians have been left high and dry, and I don't know what the latest news is, but um, they're struggling, and they are a world-class orchestra that is in threat of becoming a sometime local orchestra. 
I hope that doesn't happen. Mm, yeah, me too. And uh, shout to Fedley Seafood, which is where you got the crab cake. Oh, yeah. Where you stand at the standing tables. Yeah, you do when you eat it. <clears throat> and you think you've had crab cakes, you do sort of, when you eat something like that, go, oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> this is something that's just, you can't imagine a better version of that. Oh, I did have a little special thing I haven't mentioned. Um, our traveling lead trumpet player, the amazing Jeff Wolfer, uh, he and his wife invited me because his wife is a member of the Cosmos Club to a brunch there. Now, this is one of those private clubs for people who have accomplish something in the world of science or literature or whatever and if you become a member you can take advantage of this very uh, suave erudite cool old school erudite great uh, vocab word thank you very much it might not even be the appropriate word i'm not sure but we had a really lovely brunch there i mean i've had great weather here and i just i love dc in another life i would definitely be living here no doubt and you were right, erudite, having or showing great knowledge or learning. There you go. Ready for the seven questions? Why not? Absolutely. All right. What's the call, y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions. Wait, it's the questions. It's the questions. Question number one, book to add to the library. One of the books that I particularly loved in recent years was The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which was written by Michael Chabon. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He's really, really talented writer. And th this is just basically a, a novel inspired by the true stories of first generation or some immigrants in the 1930s and 40s, Jewish kids who were growing up in the United States who were inspired in their childhood, whether they were talented artists or writers, to create comic books. The guys who created Superman, who created uh, other comic strip superheroes, which have interesting stories as to what inspired these kids to eventually create as adults these iconic superheroes. Question number two, podcast subscribe. For those of your listeners who do know podcasts this was pretty famous it was a few years back called s-town what was so wonderful about it was it was a great example of the power of this kind of intimate audio story about something that starts out as being intriguing and then when the producer delved into it more it wound up being a story where he had gotten all his information initially from one person but because he was a good investigative reporter, the layer upon layer that he peeled away in this series was just wonderful to listen to. To me, in the end, it was just such a great tribute to how interesting people's personal lives can be at a point where you, you least expect it. Yeah. So I loved that, and I would recommend it. What I loved about it was that the story became the story. Exactly. And so it became meta, in a sense. And then towards the end, you're almost looking at yourself and how you looked at the situation and seeing yourself in Brian Reed's coverage as well as just the story itself. Absolutely. It's really, really interesting. Uh, and that's not the first time that that podcast has been. Uh, oh, really? Correct. Yeah. I can't remember the episode. I can't remember who it was, but I know that um, that has been recommended before. Number three, something you didn't know that you needed until you got it. I thought about that for a while. This little second home that I have up in the country that I had referred to before in Columbia County, for me, waking up in the morning, having breakfast and looking outside my window on my yard, 
is something that I didn't know I had it before, but once I had it, you know, it's an important thing to me. It's something that I love. Is I it, it the whole routine or it is it the view? Both. It's something that I can count on. So the routine part of it is like, this is something that I've created for myself. When I wake up, make my breakfast and enter the day by looking out that window all four seasons are fantastic there. I can think of a couple of years ago, you know, when there was snow everywhere. This was about 11 o'clock in the morning, so it was strange to see a huge owl perch on a branch staring straight at me. It's, it's actually great for bird watching. And there's deer and there's turkey. And so, yeah, that's just something that uh, fits into the category of the question you asked. Sounds like a beautiful view. Number four, bucket list place to travel. The Alentejo region that's due east of Lisbon that I visited with my brother who lives in Spain about four years ago. The easiest way to describe it is a rougher, more unspoiled version of Tuscany. Lots of medieval villages on little mini mountains, just very picturesque distinctively Portuguese as opposed to what you would see in Spain or Italy. But all the towns are very beautifully restored and in perfect condition. And this region in Portugal, you feel a little more remote than you would in, say, Monte Pulciano in Italy. The way I did it was set aside a week or two to do three or four days in Lisbon in the area. And then contrast that with four or five days in these more remote little villages, you'll get a, a beautiful balance of city and country life. Do they grow grapes uh, for winemaking in this region? Um, not so much. If you go north, the um, Douro, I, how, I believe you pronounce it in Portuguese, but the Douro River, which goes through Spain and Portugal, the north, that's the distinctive wine region. What's distinctive about the area that I was in, in the Alentejo region, are the trees that have cork under their barks. As with any great place that you would want to mention as a bucket list place, there are all these little wonderful uh, stopovers and places to uh, see. There's a place that's sort of like a mini Stonehenge that has small monoliths let's say a, a thousand years BC or something that you can go to. So you have to imagine people setting this up before written history. And then you're close to another beautiful village. So you stop off and you see this incredible spot. And then you, you spend two days there. Yeah. I forgot where you've been going. You have it's some so beautiful, incredible food and I views. Know, sure. And, you know, it's kind of a, a lesser known, but guaranteed memorable, beautiful spot. Great segue from the food side. <laughs> Number five, 50 Mile Detour Restaurant. Oh, boy. You'd be willing to go 50 miles out of your way just to eat at this restaurant. I live in Queens, uh, which is arguably the most ethnically diverse place on the planet. And I recently discovered a Korean barbecue place, not in downtown Flushing, which is one of the most famous places to get Asian food in the whole country. But it's become the well-known alternative to Chinatown. But on the outskirts of Flushing are a series of Korean barbecue places, and I've been to this one place three times with buddies of mine, and a funky little place that has the best pork belly and uh, short ribs that you grill right at your table. 
So what's a highlight about this particular place is... What's the name of it? It's Oh, yeah, that would help. It's called uh, <laughs> no ha- Hanju, H-A-N-J-O-O. Mm-hmm. And instead of putting it on just a metal surface over the open flame on your table, they have these very thick crystal plates. And the first thing they do is do the pork belly, and it's on an angle. And at the lower part of the angle, they put all the kimchi. So all the juice from the meat, Ooh. as they cook it, goes gets infused in the uh, kimchi, which, as you know, is a staple of the food. And so we got that, and then we went, all right, short ribs, which normally are incredibly tasty but can be really chewy. Well, what blew us away when we went there was that these short ribs are not on the bone, and it's unbelievably tender, and we were stuffed, and we said, let's get those short ribs again. (laughs) So That's when you know it's good. Number six, your number one skill. That's difficult. This is, this is your number one honed craft, something that you've worked at. Right. I I, I wasn't going to put something related to my drumming just because, not out of any false modesty, but what I do, I love and I'm happy with it, but the specific skill, a lot of people can do. So anyway, rather than try to analyze that, I thought I was very happy with how I evolved as a a writer of dialogue in my screenplays so I thought I would pick that it made me feel good that I pretty quickly found out that if I did anything good in screenwriting it was dialogue so that wouldn't be screenwriting as a whole but the specific specifically you're right structure and rewriting is difficult for every screenwriter and there are guys and gals who are probably great at it but that rarely just flows out and then you're done it's just such a almost guaranteed process of writing and rewriting and rewriting i feel like i have a a certain feel for dialogue so maybe that's innate maybe that's not learned but that's what i chose for that okay number seven your number one talent it's kind of goofy but for some reason and it comes probably from my parents since we've always been showbiz and movie geeks in the family even we love sort of knowing the faces and names of character actors throughout the history of movies and love identifying them and so it just got in my blood to the extent that I always can recognize them whether they're on TV or walking down the street I'll go that's so-and-so and it could be kind of like an obscure actor I'm even pretty good at recognizing quickly that it's no it looks like them but it's not them and this has happened to me enough times that friends give me a hard time about it it's just such a nerdy thing that i just identify obscure people all right rich we've loved having you here in dc and staying at union Inn and coming on the podcast for not one but two episodes so we could really delve into use a person all of your accomplishments and all things that you have in store for the future thank you very much it's been fun here and i'm gonna miss dc and freddie's retreat in a big way in a big way it's been really great staying here thank you so much i'm gonna i'm gonna miss you i'm, I'm gonna miss our conversations that we have when you come back from the kenny center like 10 10 30 <laughs> and then we end up talking like for another <laughs> Half hour, hour long. Not enough time. I could have done another month or two here. No problem. If, if you could stand me being here. Oh, yeah, please, man. You can stay as long as you want. Yeah.
As we fade out, you are listening to the lovely sounds of the fourth and final song that Rich has kindly shared with us for you all to listen to. And it's called Take It Home. Take It Home from a recording I did with my band called the East Down Septet. And this is written by our amazing guitarist, Pete McCann. If you're jazz fans, you might know who Pete is. He's one of the best jazz guitarists in New York City. There's really no explanation needed for Take It Home. It's a good name for exactly what it sounds like. Perfect. Contact info for a guest that may want to reach out to you. You on social media, or do you want to drop the website again? Uh, I'll drop the website related to screenwriting. I think, Fred, you already mentioned this, but there's a, uh, a little trailer that I made, a teaser trailer, just as a way of giving you a taste of what the story is about for the screenplay I wrote called Hell's Acres. But my website for that is richrosenswag.weebly.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful two-part episode of Guest Book Podcast. As always, if you want to reach out to me directly to stay at the end or even come on the podcast, it is innkeeper at unionindc.com. We are also on social media. So if you want to reach out to me via Instagram, there's the podcast at guestbookpod. There's the in at unionindc. And my personal at Innkeeper Freddy. And of course, the website is unionindc.com. Rich, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. You're always welcome, and hopefully, the next show that passes through DC for an extended period, we'll be able to get you in for part three and a part four, and a part five, part six, part that seven, would part be eight. Amazing. I kind of feel like this is not my last time here. I feel the same. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.